Remain standing now just for a moment. I'll ask you to turn over, if you've got your Bible, to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be looking at just the first seven verses there to open our sermon this evening. Remember that we are, as we're walking through the Westminster Confession and thinking about all the attributes of God, that tonight we come to that attribute of holiness. And so, of course, we will begin by reading from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. Amen. Would you be seated? Pray and ask for the Lord's illumination now. Father, we bless and praise your holy name. We come before you confessing that this is your word. It is holy and errant inspired. It is given to us as a gift. And we ask now that you would work in our hearts. We need the illumining work of the Holy Spirit so that we would understand the truth. We'd be able to apply it to our lives and that we would grow in our love for you. Oh, Father, we pray tonight. If there's one thing that you give us, let our hearts be stayed upon you forever and ever. For the sake of Jesus' glory and in his name we pray, amen. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to, to read, uh, I think one of the classic works that R.C. Sproul ever wrote was his book on the holiness of God. It is, I think as, you know, as you begin to maybe discover Ligonier Ministries and you learn about R.C. Sproul, you, you have to read through the glory of Christ, and you read the holiness of God, and he begins it by, by talking about this night where he is awo- awoken from a sleep, awakened, awakened from the sleep, and he goes into the chapel, and the door closes behind him with a thud, and it echoes through the hall, and he is gripped by this, this thought, this understanding of the holiness of God. And he, he walks us through in the second chapter of that book thinking about Isaiah chapter 6. And he says, consider this, that when we have a description of God, he's not described as love, 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 or mercy, 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 or grace, grace, grace. The Almighty God is described when Scripture would give you an emphatic accent upon an attribute of God, it says to you, He is holy, holy, holy. Brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that if you look at the worship practices of of the broader evangelical church, 
it is quickly apparent that one of the attributes that we seem to have forgotten is the holiness of God. It seems that in many places the fear of God has been looked upon maybe as an attribute that we shouldn't think about. And we have, as it were, brought Him down. And, and certainly, we remember that God is the one who is close to the brokenhearted. He's revealed that to us. We are, through Christ, we go into His presence. But we will, we will, we will ruin the gospel of Jesus Christ if we don't properly emphasize the holiness of God. Sometimes it would seem as though if you look at worship practices, we don't need Christ to come into the presence of God. He's just like us. But if there's one attribute that reminds us not to think of God, not to think that He is like us, it is the attribute of holiness. Now, of course, Adam was made in holiness. But we lost that holiness when he sinned. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness. And we're reminded from Hebrews chapter 12 that without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Old covenant, new covenant, holiness is demanded. Listen, God will never love you more than he loves his own holiness. Do you know that? He will never love a man more than he loves his own holiness. It is an uncompromisable aspect of his character. You think as a father, one of the things, or as a mother, one of the things that you, you have to <coughs> endure is the, a pestering of a child sometimes who wants his way, and, and they ask you over and over, and they're in the back seat, and they're throwing goldfish at your head, and we... I need this, I need to stop, etc. They pester and pester and pester. And finally, your willpower gives out and you provide the child with whatever he or she wants. God never will. He will never compromise His holiness. There is nothing for which God will compromise His holy character. He cannot. And I think as we work through this, as we, as we get a firm grasp of the holiness of God, there is particular applications that it makes in our lives. And so a few of them I, I've got here, and we'll walk through these. How do, how do I know when the holiness of God has gripped me? Well, I know that the holiness of God has gripped me when I fear Him properly. Like Isaiah in this scene when I recognize my own sinfulness. And this is when we order our prayers, sometimes we say, well, we'll begin with praying and praising God for His attributes. And when you praise God for His holiness, and you remember that according to Haggai, He cannot look upon uh, sin, what's my next response is to confess my sin. I, I live in, in, a, in a right fear of Him. You know that you have been gripped by God's holiness when you are content with what He ordains. You know where you are gripped with God's holiness, when you worship Him for what He does, whatever He does. And you know that you are gripped by the holiness of God when you pursue total obedience to His commandments. Fear Him, contentment, worship or reverence, and obedience. I think these four things really help us to diagnose if we've been gripped by the holiness of, of God. And, and very simply tonight, we're going to look at three points. God is most holy in His 
<coughs> excuse me, God is most holy in his counsels, God is most holy in his works, and God is most holy in his commands. Very simply, that is the sentence from the Westminster Confession of Faith. God is most holy, and his holiness is demonstrated in his counsels, his works, and in his commands. So let's look first of all at the fact that God is most holy in all of his counsels. Now, what is the counsel of God? For you and me, we, you might have called occasionally on a counselor. You, you go to a friend and you've got a major decision to make and you say, can you help me work through this? Uh, here are the pros and cons as I see them. Can you help me to, to make a right decision? Well, the counsels of God are similar to this, except that God doesn't go to anyone else for counsel. The confession of faith reminds us that that the counsel of God are whatever he has determined to do. So whatever comes to pass in space and time is the counsel of God. God, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Did you know that? All things according to the counsel of his will. In chapter 3, we learn that God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And that includes the, the high times of life and the low times of life. The, the time where we eat the bounty and the time where we go through the famine. All of these times are ordained by God. And how did he determine what would come to pass? He counseled within himself. In chapter 5, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. So when you're sitting on your porch and you're enjoying the nature and you, you're enjoying nature, and the leaves are falling from the trees and the wind is blowing just like you like it and the temperature is perfect and you watch that squirrel coming down um, as some of you really enjoy the squirrels in your yard I know and burying their acorns there. All of that is decreed by God. He exercises his providence over it down to the very minutia. We learn not, over, not only does what, what, whatever comes to pass in time and space are according to his providence, but the salvation of the elect and the condemnation of the reprobate are according to the counsel of God's will. In chapter 3, those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, did elect them to salvation. And the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will to pass over. In chapter 6, it teaches us that Adam and Eve's fall into sin was a part of God's counsel. This their sin, God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it according to his glory. And then the irresistible call to salvation in Westminster Confession, chapter 28, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time when it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited 
and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs unto according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. And what the confession has reminded us, reminds us tonight, is that God is holy in all of his counsel. In whatsoever he causes to come to pass in time and space, in election, in reprobation, in allowing the fall into sin, permitting it, decreeing it, providing grace through baptism um, to those who are um, to either infants or of age. All of this, God is holy in all that he does. And, and so here's the, here's the application of this point then. If God is holy in whatsoever he ordains for my life, then what is my simple response? What is that urging me toward? Contentment. It is urging me toward a contentment. You think about Joseph and his brothers. How was Joseph, when he was sold into slavery by his brothers, how did he apply the doctrine of the holiness of God in whatever he counsels? When he is there in prison, maybe eating scraps of bread and cups of water that are provided by the, uh, the, the, the prison guards, how did he maintain this attitude of contentment so that when he comes out of, out of prison, he gives praise to God? How did he do that? When his brothers in Genesis chapter 50 come to him and say, well, no, now that our father's dead, we know that you're going to take it out on us. And he was enabled to say, what you had decided for good, God determined, or you had decided for ill, God determined for good. Joseph learned contentment by meditating on the holiness of God. He knew that whatever God cause to come to pass was a holy and a good thing. Now, compare this. Turn over with me to Numbers chapter 11. You know this story. God has brought Israel out of Egypt. He's feeding them with the manna. But manna is not sufficient for them. They want meat. And they complain to Moses. They say, look, when we think back about our time in, in Egypt, we had it so good. We had meat. We sat by the pots of meat. It was basically like a Caribbean holiday. And so the Lord's anger was stirred against the people. And notice what, what happens, how the Lord responds to the people's complaints. Let's pick up in verse 18. This is Numbers chapter 11. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves tomorrow. And you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord, who is among you, and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? You see, what's happening here in, in Numbers chapter 11, verses 18 to 20, is they've forgotten that whatever God counsels, whatever the counsel of his will is, it is a holy and a righteous and a good thing for his people. And so I have a, I have a, a dear friend, Dr. Halla. He's a, a rheumatologist up in South Carolina. He's a, a, a practicing physician there. And he's written a wonderful book called the, about the Christian, being a Christian in your medical practice. And he says, you know, that a Christian, a Christian physician 
cares for his patients' bodies and their souls. Did you know that? A Christian physician cares for the body and the soul. How does he do that? The Christian physician helps you because he he takes care of your sickness, but he also reminds you how to walk faithfully with the Lord through sickness, to be content, to order your soul according to the holy counsel of God. The Christian, did you know, can praise God in the midst of cancer? Now, this does not mean that men's wicked acts are holy. Don't don't confuse that. Wicked men still commit wicked acts. But what this doctrine is teaching us that is in God's hands, even wicked acts have a holy end. In God's hands, wicked acts have a holy end or purpose that serves his glory and the good of his people. Secondly, God is not only most holy in all of his counsels, that is, whatsoever comes to pass, he is also most holy in all of his works. Now, what does that mean? How do we distinguish between the counsel or the ordination of God and the works of God? Well, I think very simply, God's works are the things that he does in space and time. So for you and I, we would think, well, what's one of the first works that God did? Creating the heavens and the earth. He declared it. And it came to be. This was a work of God. Your salvation is a work of God. When when he calls you to himself by his Holy Spirit, he is working in your heart and mind, drawing you to himself. When, When you are sanctified, that is God working in your life by his Holy Spirit. Think of the intimacy that you enjoy with God when you're sitting at your breakfast table, reading the Bible, and there God is working, just like a carpenter with his tools, forming your heart and mind, conforming them to the image of Jesus Christ. Saving faith is described as a work of the Spirit of Christ in your heart. Sometimes God works miraculously, doesn't he? Some of you might give testimony and say, I've seen some miraculous works of God. He can part the Red Sea. He can bring mountains of quail for people to eat so that it comes out of their nostrils. He can cause an axe head to float upon the water for Elisha. But God's work, did you know, can also be ordinary. God's work can also be ordinary such as when he sustains the cycles of seed time and harvest, as we talked about Saturday morning. When the seasons of cold and warm and hot come, summer and winter, according to Genesis 8.22, this is the work of God providentially sustaining his creation. (laughs) Or when you take a Tylenol and it takes away your headache, this is the ordinary work of God in your life. And all that God does in working in your life, redeeming you, sanctifying you, calling you to himself, working in your life, providentially ordering things for you, God is holy. And what does this result in for the Christian? Well, if holiness in counsel results in contentment, holiness in his works, I think, results in worship. What do you do on a regular basis? If you journal... Sometimes maybe you take time to go back and you reflect on some of the things that you've written down. And you say, I I want to remember 
God's works. I want to remember that time when, when he sent that doctor who gave me that diagnosis, and we had been working on this for years, and we finally figured it out. And I, I saw that was God working in my life to help me. Or that time when you had a great need and your car uh, was breaking down on a regular basis and you thought, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And God provided for you. And you reflect on these simple works of God in your life, the way that he's showing his care to you on a daily basis. And what do you do? You go and you gather with the body of Christ on the Lord's day and you lift up your voice in worship. Look over at Psalm 145 with me, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, And kind in all his works, or the King James has holy in all his works. Here, David praised God because all his ways are righteous. Now, I want you to think about something with me. Because John Calvin, on his commentary here, he says, look, God is not talking about those moments where God did something kind for you. It's not just talking about the kind works of God and you said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Listen to what John Calvin says here. He does not now speak of God's goodness merely in providing all his creatures with their daily food. Certainly that would be included. But it comprehends other parts of his providence, as in correcting men for their sins, restraining the wicked, trying the patience of his people under the cross, and governing the world by judgments which are often inscrutable. We don't understand why things are working the way that they are. The ground upon which praise is here ascribed to God may seem a common one, being in everyone's mouth, but in nothing is wisdom shown more than in holding fast the truth that God is just in all his ways so as to retain in our hearts an unabated sense of it amidst all troubles and confusions. This is... When God disciplines you, when he chastens you, you praise him. He goes on, though all acknowledge God to be just, and most men are no sooner overtaken by affliction than they quarrel with his severity. How dare you? Unless their wishes are immediately complied with, they are impatient, and nothing is more common than to hear his justice impeached. We praise him when it goes well, and we curse him when it goes poorly. But when we recognize that all, all God is doing in your life, even the moments when he, when he with, seemingly withholds some good thing from you that you've been praying for and praying for and praying for, why won't he let me have it? Because he's holy, beloved. Because he's holy. And all his ways are right. Children, children are tempted to despise their parents, aren't they, when they are disciplined for doing naughty things. And so are we. But a mature child realizes the good purpose of his parent's restraining hand and is thankful for it. And so, likewise, regardless of your circumstance, you recognize that God is worthy of your worship. If he's giving abundantly according to his holiness or withholding, and you think severely so, At the end of the day, what do you land on? He's holy in all of his works. He's holy. Whatsoever my God ordains is right. 
Thirdly, God is most holy in all His commands. Here, the confession takes us over to Romans chapter 7. I'll ask you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 7. Let's just read beginning in verse 7. Our proof text is verse 12. Let's read the whole whole part here. Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. (coughs) And we'll get, get to our proof test in just a second. But the thing Paul is wrestling with in Romans chapter 7 is is you've been given the law. It's written for you on the tables of stone, but it's also written on the heart of every single man, woman, and child. We have the law of God written upon us. We know it um, by nature, as it were. And we're tempted to think that the law gives life, do you see? But what Paul explains throughout his epistle is the law doesn't have any, it doesn't come with any power. It, it, it has no more power. If you strap the Ten Commandments on the back of your boat, you're not going anywhere. And it cannot get you to holiness. And Paul says, look, in verse 5, the law aroused sinful passions to bear fruit to death. In verses 8 to 9, he says, the law gives life to sin. It invigorates the rebellious nature of our sinful flesh. Yet, in verse 12, look at what he says. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Paul vindicates the law. What we remember is that God demands the total obedience of his people. God demands the total obedience of his people. It's not the law that is at issue. It doesn't have power in and of itself except to expose the sin that is in us. But we remember the law is yet good. And the command that punctuates Scripture is this. Think about Leviticus 19, chapter, chapter 19, verse 2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And Jesus repeats the command in Matthew 5, 48. You shall be perfect, for the Lord your God is perfect. And 1 Peter 1, 15. You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. The reason for this demand is that God cannot fellowship with unrighteousness. Hebrews 12, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. What we learn from this is that whatever obedience God commands of you is congruent with his holiness. Whether it is not to breed two types of um, kinds together, whether or not to sow your, sow your, your uh, land with two types of seed, whatsoever the Lord commands, He is holy in commanding it. And what's so important here is remember um, the presumption that rises up in my heart and in yours as pr- shown in Leviticus chapter 10 and Nadab and Abihu. God had told them to burn incense in their fire pans. 
and a pres- prescribed way to do it, but in an unlawful way, Nadab and Abihu, in a presumptive way, they burned incense, and fire came out from the Lord and burned them up. He took their lives. And do you remember what he said in that moment? By whoever comes near to me, I will be regarded as holy. In other words, don't come in a presumptuous way. Don't come in a way that you make up in your own mind. You come through the prescribed means. I will be regarded as holy. Just some closing thoughts here then. We, on Wednesday night, we looked at Numbers chapter 6 and the, and the Aaronic benediction. I want you to turn over there with me just for a second. Turn over to Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. <coughs> and we read this benediction. The Lord commands Aaron. He's, he's going to give the good word of the Lord to his people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, do you see verse 27? So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So shall they put my holy name upon the people of Israel and I will bless you. Do you see what God is doing in that benediction? Setting apart this people to himself. When you are baptized, how are you baptized? In the triune name of God. He is putting his name upon you, setting you apart, consecrating you to himself, saying, this is my child. You belong to me. And what is he commanding you to do? To go forth and live according to his holy commandments. Now, here's the important part. It is only through Christ Jesus that you are set free from the condemnation of the law. Do you understand? It is only through Christ Jesus that you ever obtain any kind of holiness. His blood cleanses you from sin, but it enables you in a worshipful, reverent way to go forward and obey, seek to obey the commands of God as an act of worship, not to obtain His acceptance. God is most holy, and His holiness is demonstrated in His counsels, in His works, and in His commands. When you look at the practices of the modern church, I believe regard for holiness has been lost. I think for some, the reverence and awe that God demands of His people seems like a relic of a bygone time. But truly, through Christ, we are brought near to God. We rejoice that he is close to the brokenhearted, but God never sets aside his holiness. Never, ever, never, ever. And those who are truly his people rejoice that Christ enables them to enter his presence at all. You are gripped, listen, you are gripped by the holiness of God when you fear him, when you learn contentment, when you worship at all of his works, and you seek total obedience to his commands. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, you are holy, 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 the tri, tri, thrice holy God, the one who is totally and utterly holy, the one who equipped angels with wings so that they could even cover their eyes so that they might not look upon your holiness. And Father, we thank you that in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we behold your glory. 
we conceive of you as holy, would you please impress upon my heart and in the hearts of my, my brothers and sisters here tonight a true sense of your holiness? Lord, let us open our mouths with fear. Let us learn to be content with all of your holy counsels. Help us to worship you for all of your holy works. And Lord, to seek obedience to all of your holy commands so that we might act as a people upon whom the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit has been applied. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.